Well, good morning. So today we're going to talk about leadership, uh, but not just any kind of leadership, but a true Christian shepherd leader. To be sure, this passage is set in the context of a kind of worldly leadership, much like today. I mean, Jesus could have just said, be leaders, as if everyone knew what it was. But very clearly, Jesus didn't do that. He gives very careful instructions and descriptions predicated upon the description that he's already given by his very example, which was the subject matter of our first sermon on uh, the searching for true spiritual leaders. You see, true Christian spiritual leadership is determined by skill sets, to be sure. That seems to be what the world focuses on. Who's a leader? And you begin to think about skill sets and how they are pragmatically used towards a given goal. Not so, at least from the scripture. Do we get emphasis upon that? No, he begins to talk about the kind of leader the leader is and for what purpose and with what means. And so therefore we will see that a true shepherd leader is most ultimately judged not by a standard relative to him or herself, but relative to the standard exemplified in our chief shepherd's leadership itself. Here again, Christ could have just said, be a leader, but no. This is a leadership that we're about to hear about that just quite frankly is not of this world. Even if sadly today through a kind of rusted pipe it seems to be seeping into the church more and more. I hope this sermon is more than descriptive but prophetic as it speaks into our life today. As I quoted from a 16th century uh, pastor theologian, Scottish pastor theologian James Bannerman we will find, therefore, in this kind of leadership, for this kind of church, that Christ is, is the founder of the Christian church in the sense that he gave it its origin at first, that he impressed upon it its character and its arrangement. We call it by positive institution or divine institution. Jura divino is another way to speak of it. He appointed these leaders. He called these leaders, even as he does today. And therefore, Christ continues to be present with us, in, with, and through these leaders, in, with, and through us to govern and dispense his ordinances and spiritual graces in his name and, yes, by his mediatorial presence. And therefore, we worship him not as a Christ who was once a great leader but one who is even now our leader, the chief shepherd, as through under-shepherds of his church. It's a big topic. Let us pray for God's grace to hear it. Father, do come and speak, we pray. Speak into what today, like it seems, has been true for ages past, that there is a vacuum, not of leadership. We've got tons of leadership, Lord. You see it all around us. But this kind of leadership, help us to know what it is. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a shining light in the midst of the world with a beatific vision from you about what is true Christian leadership. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, again, notwithstanding some natural developed skill sets of perhaps which, ironically, the scriptures just don't seem to give much attention to. In fact, oftentimes, if you've studied the trajectory of, of who these people are that God uses in these moments of leadership, it's almost in spite of their lack of certain skills or certain backgrounds. It's not worth a time to study it now. I think of the judges, for instance, but here's what you're gonna see today. Just to tell you what it is right off the bat. What is the characteristics of a true Christian shepherd leader? Well, first, it's the characteristic of a contagious 
a contagious conviction of faith concerning God's gospel-centered worldview in Scripture. Two, it's an empathy of compassion, both regarding God, compassion for God and his interest, and the interest of God's image bearers. Empathetic compassion. And third, and where we mostly focus today, it's a call, full, it's a call to purposeful suffering. A call to purposeful suffering. Now, these first two characteristics we've really already considered in our first sermon a couple of weeks, three or four weeks ago, that these first two characteristics of a conviction of faith and a compassionate empathy. But just by way of short review, and then we'll turn to this third characteristic, notice especially, remember in Matthew, beginning in chapter 7, how this confessional conviction of faith is demonstrated in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. It's this time, if you remember, that Jesus had just finished the sermons, plural, of the mount, we call them. And the crowds were astonished, we're told, astonished at his teachings. What was so astonishing? Well, clearly they tell you. They were astonished because his teaching, they said, was over them as one who had authority and not like leaders. You see, they were astonished. A summary of the response after Christ's sermons that are summarized starting with Matthew 5. And yet, what was that astonishment? They were humbled. They were convicted. They were being transformed. Why? Because of the conviction of which Christ spoke. Because, because of this confidence, not in himself, even as he is Lord of the world, but in the word of God, over and over, referencing it throughout his teachings. Evidently, the scribes of that day had more or less forgotten God's word, and it becomes more evident as you go through the gospel that they had not remembered the prophecies, and they had not properly prepared for the coming of the Messiah, and they had not understood the nature of their own shepherding leadership over the church of God of the Old Testament. And so here we have one who comes with this conviction of this confessional sort of, of, of spirit about what he believed in a way that was contagious. They were, they were astonished and impacted. This, of course, brings it to the ultimate question concerning judgment, albeit with our with or without the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the whole thing that Christ was teaching was the word of God as it's directed in, with, and through the redemptive purposes of God. That's key. Everything he said had a purpose, and it wasn't just to be right. And it wasn't just for self-advantage. And it wasn't for some personal pet Mission statement. Christ spoke with this power, always directed towards the purpose of the gospel and the reconciliation of the world to God and one another. And so we see in the New Testament the commissions that we have towards those who would succeed the apostles. And just to be careful to know that, that this instruction in Matthew is then in succession through those who would follow after the apostles, and we call it apostolic succession. Those offices that are appointed by Christ upon the foundation of the apostles, wherein they would then begin to follow in the same pattern of leadership. You think of Paul's commission of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. I have put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy, for which you will suffer, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God will not be bound. Notice especially the faith. He's not speaking of an experience of faith here. He's telling him that he is to govern his words, govern his ministry by the faith, that 
corpus of belief and doctrines and statements of, of purpose and intent and description that comes from God, a revelatory source. This is why it's not of this world. These are not words. These are not concepts. These are not purposes or intents that come from the ambitions of this world. They are as one set, one book over against another book. Two books per, for sure, but this is a unique book. We call it Special Revelation. The pattern of sound words, notice that language that he uses here in 1 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of the sound words. What is a pattern? It's that which is determined by a holistic and full understanding of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. A pattern that will direct us to the faith, confession of faith, or worldview if you want to call it, that brings us to Jesus Christ. It's even followed, these condemnation, these commissions is followed by Paul in a condemnation of any who would lead from any other source. I want you to hear that. Anyone who would be a Christian leader in the church and even in the world on behalf of the church would hear this condemnation with a shiver. For if anyone teaches a different faith, a different doctrine, and does not agree with the, quote, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with that godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. I thought I'd turn that off. Oh, my world did that happen. Sorry. This is so important. It should give anyone who stands in this pulpit and anyone who speaks or leads for the church incredible chills to be called something like this by Christ. We cannot, we cannot study the leadership of this world and the face of this world and be a true Christian shepherd of Christ. That's our first one. The second, remember, was the compassion the empathy for God and God's image bearers. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, 9, I'm sorry, verses 18 through 34, you remember, we heard reference even as they were to do it, how they were to go out and they would talk about the healing of women with images and raising of officials' daughters, healing of the two blind men, exorcism of mutes, de de demoniac, and, and demon-possessed. And then here's the summary. Here's the summary of all that description that Christ uh, is, given, or is given to Christ in his ministry and then transferred to the apostles. And then Jesus was going about, this is the summary, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, there it is, conviction of faith, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, curing every kind of disease and every sickness. The idea is there was no limit to his compassion. No limit. And just in case you're not sure that that's the point, verse 36 says this. Why did he do all this? Verse 35, the, the stuff I just read about in 35, verse 36 says, for when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion for them, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep having no shepherd. This cannot be diminished. A conviction for the word of God cannot be executed in a way any less than with a compassion for image bearers, all image bearers. His diagnosis was they were like a sheep without a shepherd. He saw, Christ saw beneath the veneer and he said, what's going on here? And they were as sheep without a shepherd. That's a whole conversation about just what is it about humanity that was made, conceived of, originated with the intent that they would not flourish without shepherds, without a leader, ultimately, of course, being God. God alone is the shepherd who brings the flourishing. And Jesus would look at the crowds, the very crowds, as we'll see, that would turn against him, and he would cry. He'd say, Lord, they don't know what they are doing. 
They're lost. And they harass one another. They beat each other up. They shame each other. They cancel each other. They point fingers at each other. They devour each other. But instead of getting mad at the others, the two others, he says, they know not what they do. They're lost. He had compassion upon them. He saw deeper than the surface and the circumstantial. He went deeper than the circumstance. And he saw something deeper. Their soul. First Peter, you can imagine having digested this very comment that was made in his presence. How when he then passes in apostolic succession the baton, if you will, to the next generation of leaders with this diagnosis of the problem in the world is that they're sheep without a shepherd. That is the diagnosis. Of course, being the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, is what we need. He says, so I exhort the presbyters among you, or the bishops here is actually the word, as fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not for personal interest, but as willingly as God would have you, eagerly, proving to be an example to the flock. That is to see never out of a concern for self-interest, but evidently the interest in the interest of them and Christ with compassion there to shepherd. You remember Christ and how he just impressed this upon the heart of the apostles, particularly Peter. Do you remember? Does a passage come to mind? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him again, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And then he said the third time, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. <laughs> you know that I love you. And he said again, feed my sheep. Three times, loving empathy. Paul will say in Ephesians 5 how we, have, we are to imitate God in love. And so this brings us to today's passage. With the context of this inspirational conviction of, of, of the word of God a conviction that would lead us to empathy and compassion. Now we turn to our passage, what I've described as a call to purposeful suffering. That is, in so many words, a call to, I'm sorry, embrace the suck. That's really what they heard in so many words. Notice the call, chapter 10. And he called to him, his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority. Now, to call someone, again, this is to imply that, that you don't call yourself. This is, isn't self-appointed authority. It's authority that first and foremost must come from Christ. Christ calls someone this is so important. It gives this person, on the one hand, authority to know that I did not appoint myself. As you go through the scriptures, you'll discover how this call is to be discerned and how it will involve a very careful vetting by those already 
called, who would then pass down to the next generation a very careful vetting by that previous generation that was called, by the previous generation that was called, all the way back to who? The apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. We call it ordination. Ordination today has become a joke. You can make a phone call and get it in about a minute. Today, if you're, if you're really honest, you've got to be careful. Saying reverend in front of your name or saying elder or teaching elder, that's, that's just pomp and circumstance. No, he's talking about a very careful process of vetting where there's an external sense of call from Christ to me and an internal reception of that call within me as this is all affirmed within the church of God who sees in you these, these very aspects which in then you can finally be called. But always called with a condition insofar as you speak the truth of God, not of this world. Insofar as you speak it in love, not with vengeance, not with animosity or hatred for those that you're called to speak it and lead. And so we have this very interesting, and he called them, this proactive, intentional, purposeful event where God, not accidentally, oh, by the way, would you mind going over there? No, 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 no. No, this is intentional, according to the mind of Christ, as it should be today. There's a sense in which a leader should never think himself or herself to be a leader until they are truly called. Therefore, it would make me nervous to stand in this pulpit as it should make you nervous to be a team leader in this church that you would have self-appointed yourself. Or self, I know, it's a devil in tundra. But that's the point. There's a sense of call that's going to be passed down. Paul alludes to this when he talks about how that which I've received, I've passed on to you that you might pass it down to the, to your, to the next generation and then the next generation and the next generation. He goes through four generations in that passage in Timothy to make sure you understood how this call gets passed down. And notice the goal, verse 7. The goal of this call, as you go, say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, dot, dot, dot. The kingdom of heaven. Again, I wish I could speak longer. How many ways can the kingdoms of this world creep in, I wonder? Well, if you had any, any doubt that it could happen, then open your eyes. It's everywhere, polluting. Like I said, like in my mind, sometimes I feel like there's just this rusty pipe stuck right into the side of the church. And in comes this polluted, acidic water. The water that doesn't lead to the kingdom of heaven. It's not of the kingdom of heaven. There's a kingdom, the lordship of Christ, and his incredible love. A royal priesthood is the language that's spoken of in the church throughout history and in the, in the, in the scriptures. Royal, that is authoritative priesthood, mediator. Someone who mediates the love of God and reconciles people together. Always, always, always the kingdom of heaven, not like this word, world, is towards reconciliation. Mediatorially produced reconciliation. Just stop and think about that. The word reconciliation could truly be a subtitle for every single chapter of the book of the Bible. And I know some of you are going, wow, how did that fit the Canaanite? I mean, I know where you're going. You're going to see where we're going. There is justice in reconciliation, but not the way the world conceives of it. 
So the goal is the kingdom of heaven, which was good news for sinners. We never forget that. If it's the kingdom of heaven, sinners are rejoicing, not the self-righteous. A true shepherd then will forsake everything for this kingdom. Seek ye first, Christ would tell them later. Seek first this kingdom. Every other kingdom, and there are many other kingdoms, they can never be first if you're a true Christian shepherd leader. They can never be first, Friday. They can never, ever outscream, overpower the kingdom of heaven. Notice then this exhortation to suffer as an important element of this call. Not as unrelated, the call and the goal is direct conflict. It clearly, he will go on to say that this goal, this ambition, this purpose of the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven, it is going to be accomplished. And here's the key. I want you to listen carefully. Here's the key that you're going to see in a minute. I'm telling you first, so you see it. The key is it's not, oh, by the way, you're probably going to suffer for it. That's not what he says. He's saying, in so many words, it's by your suffering that this message and that this kingdom and this love will actually be accomplished. It's your suffering, qua suffering, that then your message and your leadership actions will have the desired effect. That is, that is something. Many of us in MA, are, many of the pastors, as you know, have a collaborative. And, and um, we have been, uh, recently we reread a, a paper by a guy named Phil Riken. He used to be the pastor over at 10th Perez, who's now up in Wheaton. But it was a very profound conversation. I mean, the conversation went on for hours among us as church planners and pastors. And really, it was a paper on this very topic. I won't go through it now, but it was... It was profound to see just how frequently the purposefulness of suffering is spoken of in Scripture. Now, of course, you can see why. I mean, isn't that how we came to know the shepherd of our soul, Jesus Christ, through his suffering? How it was a vindication of his love that he went to the cross for us? And so listen to what he says. Behold... Behold, verse 16, I am sending you, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We'll talk about that in a second. But the key thing is notice the sending. He didn't say, you know, it it might happen. He's saying, I'm sending you to, basically you could just paraphrase, I'm sending you to suffer. I'm sending you in order to suffer. And notice about this suffering. Three observations quickly about this suffering. First, he makes it clear, listen, you need to understand what I'm talking about here. I'm just not talking about a few long hours in the day. I'm not talking about being on call 24-7. I'm not talking about, you know, anybody can, you know, a lot of people do that. Now, here's what he says. (laughs) Beware. Of people, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. They will bear witness against you before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father and child and his children will rise against parents. Listen to this language here. Flogged? I mean, that's that's hostile. That's just mean. There's hate in these words. I mean, basically, he says it later. They will hate you. The very people you are loving and serving and seeking to save will hate you. That's the worst suffering of all. Jesus says it's one thing for someone to give his life for a friend. It's a total different thing. It's not of this world. 
to give your life, to give up your rights, to give up your benefits, to give up your esteem, your prestige, your power for those who hate you. I want you just to stop and think about that. How that is so not of this world. Even death. Even death. I mean, it gets real intimate here. Not only does he describe those of your same nationality, you know, fellow citizens of, say, a governing body of some sort, but he talks about brothers against brothers and sisters and fathers against children and children against fathers and mothers and parents and, oh, oh. I mean, if you've even felt a taste of it, you know how you will lose nights of sleep thinking to your mind, how is it that I love them so much and they're turning against me? What have I done wrong? Could I have said it better? I can't imagine Jesus Christ when the whole world did this. When the whole world did it. There's no limit to the suffering that he sends a true Christian shepherd into. That is, at least in our own minds. This, by the way, is the, the basis of the sacred vow of poverty that I think every Christian in principle should take if they want to be a servant leader. A willingness to deny their rights for the greater good of the kingdom of heaven and the love of those who need the compassion of Christ that comes through it. It's a motive that needs to be checked every single time you walk into the pulpit, every time you walk into the lectern, every time you lead a team. Everything has to come through this. As Paul would say in chapter 8 of Corinthians, I give up my rights as a citizen of Rome. I give up my rights as an esteemed scholar of his day. I give up my rights of even justice for myself. I give them up. All for the sake, he said, for proclaiming Christ. This is purposeful. And there's no limit. There's nothing, oh, until it cost me my family. Idol one, maybe. Or until it costs me my material possessions, idol two maybe. Or until it costs me, and you could just go right on. This is serious stuff. I don't want this to be heard as some kind of nice oratory moment. This is serious stuff. And into this moment, we need to hear this. Secondly, there's no limit to the source of the suffering. In other words, I've already mentioned that it can come from spiritual spiritually corrupted churches. It can come from, that is, in their synagogues. It can come from civil power, kings and governors, and it can come even from family or those closest to your inner circle. Notice in third, how would this be corrupted? How does it get so corrupted that it can do this? Here is a very important notation that gives great instruction. He says this, And therefore, he says, what I tell you in the dark, you will say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaimed on the housetops, that is, trust not what is being shouted, not what is the movement of the moment. Don't trust that. Trust rather that which is whispered. Elsewhere in scripture describes how the word of God whispers into our souls. Throughout scripture, I just did a little study thinking, God, is this really the right interpretation? I mean, I want to make sure here because it's going to have a profound impact in some stuff in a minute. And so I just did a little quick kind of review of scripture looking for words like, you know, 
angry crowds and mobs and stuff like that. Wow. Wow. What did I find? Well, I'm not even going to go through the Old Testament. It would take way too long. Let me just say, by the time we're getting onto the, on the edge of New Testament and the coming of Christ, we hear things like this now codified in prophetic lure. And it says things like Psalms 26. I hate the mob. I hate the mob of evil men. And I do not associate with the wicked. That is to say, I do not get my, my marching orders for the, from the mob. Psalm 64, hide me from the scheming of wicked people, from the mob of evildoers. Ezekiel 16, they will bring a mob against you to stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. Somehow mob just keeps coming up. Crowds, the word could be. Angry crowds, the words sometimes are. And then we turn to the New Testament. I mean, almost every single time the description of suffering happens that Christ just spoke about. I mean, literally almost every single time there is a mob involved. Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived and a large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Mark 15. And so Pilate, now we go on to Pilate. Pilate, wishing to satisfy who? The mob released Barabbas for them and after scourging Jesus, handed him over for crucifixion. John 7. But this mob that does not know the law, they're under a curse. Acts 16. Then the mob joined the attack against them and the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods, speaking of the apostles. Acts 17, 5, and then the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And it persecuted them. Acts 17 talks about inciting the mob to a riot in Thessalonica. Acts 19 talks about how this, there was this great riot that formed. On it goes, Acts 21. 34 and 35, where Paul was beaten and stricken, scourged by a mob. Interesting, isn't it? How this warning assumes, first of all, that mobs aren't a good way to measure true justice and love. Today, it seems like mobs, and it comes right encoded in our kind of mentality, I think, in America, but we had this notion that, you know, common sense should rule. And common means common, as I mean the kind of sense that comes from the populace, the popularity of the, of the world. Today, it seems that mobs are more than just a public testimony. It if you will, it's, it's become a form of justice. Now, this is not to rail against perhaps what is true that is being protested. This is not even to rail against protest. You hear me? That's not my point at all. It's, it's, it's how, it, it's more than that. It's how do we do it? And and where do we finally get our commissioning and our marching orders and our everything we're going to do and say and, and how we pronounce guilt and all of this other stuff? It, it's from that which is whispered. So especially we see this tendency to confuse the judgment of populism with the judgments of God. In so many words, there is a of this world judgment and there is a judgment from God, a revelatory word from Scripture. But here's the greater point. Especially for the true Christian shepherd leader, whatever the mob, civil mob, populist mob, publishing mob, whatever the mob is, and I use that word now with quotes, as in the populist, the 
audience, if you will, should never become sovereign. That's my only point. Nathan Hatch wrote a great book on, on a kind of, a, it, was a religion, it was a history of America with respect to you know, religion in America. And he, he makes this point coming out of De Tocqueville and others that, that whatever America is, what you do discover is that what rules America is, and his quote was, the sovereign audience. That's kind of what we made America to be, called democracy. And there's some great things about it, okay? Great things. This is not a civil speech. This is not a political theory speech. Don't go there. It's not even in my horizons to speak to that. What it is to say is that when it comes to the true Christian spiritual leader, it's the word of God, period, that governs. And here's the point. If you do that, even as you love, even with the conviction, you are not just going to suffer, you're going to be called to suffer. To suffer not merely a circumstantial suffering, in other words, suffering that just happens, a kind of suffering that we must tolerate, put up with, concede even, in order to do the work. It's not even like the suffering, well, I won't say that because it is kind of. No, but I'm talking about a suffering that is purposeful. I'm talking about a kind of embracing the suffering. Embracing the suffering is part of your calling, Christian. To be a Christian, to embrace it. In order that, the intended goal of the of the sacrificial nature of the love of Christ will be evident to the world. Isn't it interesting who got saved on the cross? After, after the, the thief watches Christ get just mocked and scorned and shamed and canceled and all of that stuff, and then he looks to him and he says, you must be the son of God. <laughs> I mean, what happened there? Who else would do this? Love them while they hated him. Who else could do this? Isn't that interesting? How then do we suffer? Like I said, we give up personal interests and rights. We resist blame shifting and shaming. And we do it without fear. Three times, three times Jesus says, you will do it without fear. And you're going to go, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, listen to what he says. And it's a kind of check on my faith if it's not yours. It's like he's going to say, hey, Preston, do you really believe what you say you believe? Look what he says. Don't you believe in ultimate justice so that you don't have to take vengeance upon it for yourself? I ate my sermon three weeks ago. Hope you listen to it if you haven't. It's a really important sermon that gives context to this sermon. You believe, we believe in ultimate justice. Look what he says explicitly in verse 26 of chapter 10. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The truth will come out. You will be vindicated. Probably not necessarily in this world or during your lifetime, but maybe. But you will be vindicated as Christ was by the resurrection of the dead, you will be raised up from the dead. And you will be vindicated, Christian. You will be vindicated. The whole world will say, oh my gosh, that's the truth. And I just think to myself, gosh, on that day, I pray God I'm not over there. Oh God, this is going to be horrible. Even if I got in because of grace through faith in Christ, Paul talks about how so much of what we will do will get burnt when it's not done in faith, in Corinthians. And he goes on. Again, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There's judgment day coming, and you are not forgotten, Christian leader. You're not going to be forgotten. And then he goes on to say, the second point, why not fear? Here again, don't fear, second command. And do not fear, again, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What's he point is he making? Hey, Christian, 
I mean, do you really believe in, in, in life after death? Do you really believe in heaven? Do you really believe that God is seized and there's going to be justice? Then good news, good news. They can't do nothing to you. you. They can't do nothing to you. Again, do you believe in the resurrection and life eternal? And finally, fear not because you're not forgotten. Rather, you're deeply loved as one who would suffer with Christ. Here's his words. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them who will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valued than many sparrows. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. Do you hear how this passage is framed? Isn't it interesting how this passage is hardly ever used in the context that it's actually spoken in? This is not talking about everyone. Not here. This is not talking about that, well, God loves everybody's stuff. Well, he does, and he does care. But no, this is a passage I hear quoted all the time. And it's a specific promise to a specific person, a person who suffers for Christ. Don't be afraid. God sees you. He sees you. If any one of you have been in, in the crucible of leadership for God, you know how precious that is. I do not need to tell you. Oh, how precious that is. God knows and he sees. That's important, you know, God knows. But he sees, he's watching. It's not lost on him. Love and forgiveness. All of this, a kind of love that, of course, brings us to the cross and this final quality of, of a shepherd leader, of loving your enemies, seeking their reconciliation, not their condemnation, is a different kind of love than's in this world. Please think about this. And so I want to end with an illustration. Uh, I'm a little bit, I'm going to do it anyway, just a little bit. Uh, it's a powerful illustration. I could certainly give the illustration of Martin Luther King Jr. and his commitment to passion, passionate commitment to proactive and intentional suffering. You know, his nonviolence. Great, great biography I read was Malcolm X. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite biographies. And, um, but Malcolm X, as you know, was a, a different kind of leader than Martin Luther. Up until his final days where he believed that he, he turned or repented from that, non, that violent approach. It's a great, great story. I could think of John Perkins, and many of you know him now as you're reading his book, and if you've read his little first book, on, which is really an autobiography, Let Justice Roll, you, you know just a great example of what this kind of leadership looks like. But I want to talk about someone that probably we haven't talked about here much, and that's Nelson Mandela. And especially his strategies throughout the world of those who study social justice, perhaps indicative of the most effective campaign there ever was in the world. Many would say that. You can debate it if you'd like. I actually went to one of his rallies when studying in Boston. It was like a, a revival service. It was incredible. But Nelson Mandela, if you don't know him or if you know a little bit about him, he, he really did, of course, dedicate his whole life to ending the racially oppressive apartheid system, and he created a democratic, inclusive South of Africa. First in the 1950s, Mandela helped lead the African National Congress nonviolent campaign against the white minority rule. Later, he led the ANC, an armed, violent struggle against that system. Eventually, he was captured and charged with treason. Against the advice of his lawyer, he gave a four-hour closing argument at his trial, and in it, he detailed the suffering of blacks under apartheid. He denounced the system as degrading and inhumane. He told the courts that his actions with the armed wing of the ANC had been in pursuit of free democracy in which people of all races are treated equally. This is a quick summary. And then he said this, quote, 
It is an ideal for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. He got the suffering. But the story doesn't end there. The court, of course, found him guilty in 1964. He began serving a life sentence on Robben Island. During his 27 years in prison, Mandela became an icon, as you know, uh, as, as standing against injustice and of the apartheid system, if you know any history. He was the global face in my life, I remember, during that time of this anti-segregationist in this, in this racist kind of apartheid movement. And when the calls to free Nelson Mandela were finally answered in 1990, parts of the country were on the verge of civil war. And this is where I want to pick up. A divided country. Let's just be honest. We have a divided country. A divided church. CPC, listen to me. Politically, we're divided here more sharply perhaps than we know. This is a politically divided congregation. Is that good news or bad news for you? Hold on. The divided country. What was happening? Whites, on the one hand, those who still controlled the economy in South Africa's vast natural resources were threatening to abandon the country. Surely Mandela must have pondered, as a black man, what? Good riddance. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you in the backside. He went, certainly, in his ANC days particularly, it would have been a defeat and a win for him. Blacks, on the other hand, who'd been oppressed and impoverished for generations upon generations, were so tired of waiting for change Mandela must have thought, wouldn't this be the easiest way to get it? But he knew something. Something had happened to him. His response, here it is. What you could describe as a call for justice through reconciliation or peace. What's called restorative justice now in academic terms who studied him. He says this, it's not until I changed myself that I could change others. How could you walk out of prison and say that? That expression of being really born again and the need for internal revival before one can lead to external revival was just one of many expressions of faith that Nelson Mandela shared throughout his life. It's almost universally agreed that he was a Christian. His exact denomination allegiance remains a source of discussion, while some have suggested he might have been a Jehovah Witness, as his first wife, his sister, and many relatives around him identified as such. But almost unanimously, it's believed that he was most influenced in most affiliated with the Methodist uh, church. He was baptized in a small Methodist stone church in the Eastern Cape Village at Quano. In his autobiography, his own biography, called The Long Walk of Freedom, he accredits much of his, his maturation to ex his experience of Christianity, praising its engagements with society, etc. Consequently, while attending the University of Fort Hare as an elite black university in Alice, Eastern Cape, Mandela became a member of the Students Christian Association and became a leader of the Christian movement there, teaching Bible studies uh, on Sundays in nearby villages. And among other factors, therefore, it is most certainly true that Mandela's Christianity steered him in his radical approach to restorative justice. It's amazing. As against, for instance, retributive justice. So think about this. Having spent 27 years in prison for trying to end white minority rule through violence, Mandela somehow walked out of that prison as an emblem of peace. Of peace. 
by reconciling with the individuals who had been the instruments of oppression during his captivity. In his inauguration as president in 1994, he called for national reconciliation. Those were bold words at that time. Not spoken by people like himself. And for a new country in which all citizens would prosper, he says, never, never, and never again shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another and suffer indignity. And he meant it for everyone. One indignity doesn't then get resolved by yet another indignity became his binding conviction. He ended his inaugural streets as sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom ring. God bless Africa, I thank you. And what did he do? It wasn't just words. It wasn't just an inauguration speak. What did he do? He immediately proceeds to invite one of his formal jailers to a dinner marking the 20th anniversary of his release from heaven. These are called what many people refer to as his four acts of forgiveness. It's become folklore. Secondly, he invited his former prison guard to his inauguration ceremony as a South African president. I just so wish and love to see this kind of love, wouldn't you? And I'm not saying we're not going to see it. That's not a damn. I'm so tired of politics coming in through the back door. I'm not seeing anything about anything that's going on right now. Mandela has, has lunch with the man who tried to kill him. Thirdly, and fourthly, and maybe you know about this, this may be one of the more popular things that he did, or is made popular by the movie Invictus. Mandela dons the Springbok rugby jersey in the 1995 Rugby World Cup final. Perhaps you don't, hadn't seen the movie, but the whole point of that is during the apartheid era, a few symbols summed up oppression for Mandela and the ANC colleagues more than the hated green Springbok jersey. At home matches, the pens in which black South Africans were made to stand, always full of fans cheering for the opposition to those green jerseys that represented oppression. Mandela was making a huge statement by wearing a green jersey at the World Cup final in 1995, and then he presented the trophy to South African captain Francois Pinar, sending out a strong message of a united country. I hope if you haven't seen it, you'll go watch that movie, Invictus. It's really pretty powerful. All of this is what we call restorative justice. I close with this. The academic assessment of restorative justice is mostly positive, though it's always going to be debated. Most studies, though, suggest it makes offenders less likely to reoffend. A 2007 study also found that it had a higher rate of victim satisfaction, victim satisfaction and offender accountability than traditional methods of social of justice delivery. Here's my point. Nelson Mandela was an anti-apartheid revolutionary, and because of that, he suffered 27 years only to emerge as a leader of reconciliation. Mandela, in the worst of circumstances, demonstrated that there's no circumstance more powerful than the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to accomplish that which is ultimately to everyone's flourishing. To put it mildly, Mandela's sacrificial love and willingness to embrace his suffering in a purposeful manner, such as to bring true and lasting healing to his land through restorative justice, pales in comparison to the one who inspired Mandela, however. Pales. Consider more than mere national conflict. Jesus entered into a world, the whole world, even the world of all times and places world. Not just for the world of his day, the world that, of Adam and Eve's day and everything in between and everything after. He stepped into that world. A world that was embroiled in a civil war with one another and a spiritual war with God. He came into darkness, filled with the convictions that come from God and fleshed with the humility that, uh, that, that enabled him to love God and others. He came into darkness and shone a great light, a light that would take empathetic 
passion, and most especially is sacrificial willing to embrace his suffering as the grounds not to send people to hell. He did not come to put retributive justice on others. He absorbed it through his suffering. He absorbed every bit of that hate through his suffering. In a cosmic event like no other event in the history of humankind, he was sent to hell. And this, my Christian brothers and sisters, is true Christian leadership. So let's remember it. And let's remember it as related to today. And after Mandela, let it start within ourselves. Let us have an inward revival. Let us rededicate ourselves not to following, now to follow his steps as did many ways, many who followed after him. Yes, there's the MLKs and the John Perkins and the Nelson Mandelas, but of course it goes back through church history and all of the Christian martyrs. It goes back to the apostolic age and Paul and Peter and all those who were hated by those they came to save, even to the point of death, all but one who was exiled. That's our call. Amen.